Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Sports Matters, November 19th, 2013. One week before Thanksgiving. Uh... <laughs> Is everyone doing their training eating? Yeah. Uh, joined by Head Barnes, I'm Brian Wilmer. Actually, that's, that's a good point. Uh, I was talking long ago about how I needed to start a, uh, a training company for people who are going to large events, you know, where you don't get a lot of sleep and you're going to be around a bunch of smoke and everything else. And you kind of start your, your training a few weeks beforehand. We could have like a Thanksgiving training program where you, you just, you eat like absolute crap and watch football for, you know, 12 hours a day for three weeks so that you're in proper game shape when Thanksgiving rolls around. It's a beautiful idea. You need to make sure that your nap game is tight. (laughs) <laughs> all right. That's really what Thanksgiving is all about for me. I'm actually going to be working on Thanksgiving this year, so I'm really <sighs> kind of disappointed that I'm going to miss out on my favorite tradition, which is eating a big afternoon meal and then promptly falling asleep in front of a football game. Yes, but why don't you tell people where you're working and you'll lose that sympathy real quick? Well, I don't know. I'm working a basketball tournament in Las Vegas. And, oh. Well, I, I don't know. I, I, am, I am off the Vegas bandwagon. I really am. I'm not yet. Okay. Do you, but first of all, before we forget, why don't, why don't you tell people how everyone can reach the program? Because that's very important, and then we can kind of go back on why I'm, I'm off, I, I don't think about going to Las Vegas as an easy vacation anymore. Absolutely. We are at Sports Matters on the tweeters. If you want to send us a tweet, please feel free to do so. Also, radio at sportsmatters.info, the email address, radio at sportsmatters.info, if you want to send in your thoughts to the program. Now, about Vegas. Um, sure. I like to gamble some. I'm not, I'm not a big card player. Like you like to sit down and play poker. That is not what I'm going to do. I'm going to play some cheap blackjack, <laughs> but mainly if I'm going to do anything, I'm going to wager on sports. That's fair, usually fair enough. And that's, you know, and that, and that, I view that as kind of a different thing, but for the most part, the whole Vegas thing, you know, where I'm going to be up till, you know, five thirty in the morning and I'm drinking everywhere I go and just completely blown it out like that. I, I don't, I really don't feel the need to do that as much anymore. I don't, I don't, I try to kind of keep more of the even keel with my partying, a slow burn, but maybe a constant slow burn as opposed to the peak of Vegas followed by the Valley of the aftermath. See, I'll sit at a poker table until five 30 in the morning. I, I have no qualms whatsoever with doing that. Of course I'm not drinking, but I'll, yeah, I'll gladly do that. Wait, what's that? I'm saying you'll be sleep deprived, but you're not going to be hung over and sleep deprived. Yeah, exactly. And see, I'm I'm the person who actually spent a bit of time, and not to name drop, but just to put oh. it out there. I uh, I spent quite a few hours, and my dad can attest to this. He was out there uh, playing poker with Greg Maddox's dad. <laughs> For some reason, I, I just saw the movie with the lady friend, uh, I Love You Man. Oh, dude. that That was fine. I'm okay with that movie. But when you start getting into this is 40, it's more uh, like this is 40 hours long. I did not see that one yet, but all I could think of was the, the, the real estate agent who's like Paul Rudd's foe or whatever in the movie <laughs> where he starts talking about, you know who took this picture? M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> <laughs> that was, for some reason, I was hoping you'd say M. Night Shyamalan was at the poker table. That would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm uh... – I don't roll in that high of circles, but yeah, getting to play with uh, Greg Maddox's dad was pretty cool. And of course, there's there's the typical slap dick at every table who's sitting there like, oh, uh, so since your son's pitched in the big leagues, why don't we talk about J.R. Richard and Bob Gibson for six and a half hours? Ugh. 
Was that you? <laughs> Hell no, that was not me. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. No. <laughs> See, that's another thing, too. You you and I know this because we spent a little bit of time, you more so than I even, uh, around you know people in the sporting realm. And the last thing they want to talk about when they're not on a field or a court or whatever else is their sport, usually. Well, it's interesting how that can work. I mean, being around people... Um, who you know live and breathe baseball because it is their job um it's bound to come up in some capacity i mean especially when you're embedded with a team like i was you know and you're traveling and sure. you're at the hotel and you get to know these people and i had some uh, very interesting conversations um with some members of the Padres coaching staff and in particular pitching coach Darren Balsley was always a very interesting guy to talk to because he had a lot of thoughts uh, that didn't necessarily mesh with conventional wisdom about the game of baseball and they would come up from time to time. But these are just people. And that fact seems to be completely lost on the people that would be coming up to say hello to them um, in the middle of a conversation that you were having. So if we're talking about, you know, social issue of the day, and, you know, some fan comes up. What do they want to do? Oh, you remember that time you were playing against Colorado <laughs> and um, you hit that home run in the seventh <laughs> inning? It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Can we take a pick? Can we take a pick? Can you sign um, my sh- my uh, napkin? <laughs> you know, or whatever. And it's, it's just weird enough. But they're just people. If you treat them as just people when you approach them, they will appreciate that a whole lot more than coming up, Woo, Padres! Yeah! <laughs> yeah, see, there were a couple of things that uh, that I wanted to talk about on the program, and, and we, we don't have a ton of time, but we'll, we'll get to them. First of all, I um, wanted to talk about something funny, sports-related, because we need to do that. Also, uh, there was a, a story, and this has become of a little more interest to me lately, because I've started back on the uh, the Big South Conference basketball beat lately about what it takes to be a successful sports writer. And there are a couple of things within that that I'm, I'm finding are still not being followed all the way. And we'll talk about that. And, of course, we'll take a look at this week's football action. And uh, we will probably be one of the 500 shows you hear this week that talks about the Auburn-Georgia game from last week, just briefly. We'll get to all that. But first of all, let's get to the funny thing, because we meant to get to this on Did That Make Air, which, by the way, that's our other program, at Did That Make Air on Twitter, dtmapodcast at gmail.com. If you're not listening... You should be. Dateline Kansas City. Yeah, it is philosophy-ish. Good call. Uh, <laughs> Dateline Kansas City, Missouri. A longtime Kansas City Chiefs fan says he swapped six game tickets for a wedding ring set on Craigslist. Well, I mean, in order to really analyze this deal, I guess I would need to know, like, well, what are you getting? What are you getting out of this? Like, what's the stone like? What's the setting like? I mean, are you getting value? <laughs> The, uh, the bu- really, that's what's important. Yeah, the uh, the buyer, 49-year-old Kansas City resident Rusty Jones, says he first learned of the ring offer last week through a story in the Kansas City Star. He contacted the seller who wanted to swap the rings and surprise a, surprise a loved one with tickets to the December 1st game at Arrowhead Stadium. I guess it wasn't a she that wanted to be surprised with a wedding ring set. <laughs> I don't know. This is Wow. <laughs> Uh, Just a thought. The, the tickets are a hot commodity as the Chiefs have started the season 9-0 and and the December home game against Denver could have playoff implications. A season ticket holder since 1993, Jones said he and his girlfriend had started talking about engagement rings a month ago. He had tickets to offer, though, the, not, though not the club-level seats the seller was seeking. 
Nonetheless, his offer worked. Four tickets to the Broncos game and two tickets to the November 24th Chargers game, all in Section 123 near the end zone. Jones said the seller lost his contact information and ended up reposting the Craigslist ad. He reached out again and made a deal. The rings, which the newspaper said were from the seller's previous marriage, oh, dude, were appraised at $2,800. The seller is asked to remain anonymous to avoid spoiling the surprise. Uh-huh. Now, if you're going to use a used wedding ring and it's anything other than this was my mom's <laughs> ring kind of situation, yeah. I feel like you're going to get into the wall real fast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if it doesn't have the words family heirloom somewhere in it, that's probably not a good play. Right. That probably is a better way to explain it. Um, look, if it's not like the Holocaust ring from The Hangover, if you need a more recent movie reference, you're probably going to need a better reason than six Chiefs tickets to get you. Like, I would assume this is going to end up getting back to said girl because I would imagine on whatever social calendar you guys may keep, the Bronco and Charger games were probably pretty important as this season wore on if you had said tickets already, You'd right? you think, yeah. So <laughs> don't you think that the news reports and the fact that you're suddenly not going to this game anymore and the fact that a wedding ring suddenly shows up, she might be able to cobble this story together? I would love to hear his explanation for where he found the, the rings. Yeah. I would pay for that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, that would be pure comedy, uh, you know, and that is now uh, another very interesting part of the Chiefs season. But as a Niner fan, I'm more interested in the fact that they've already won eight games. That means another second-round pick to San Francisco. <laughs> um, one other thing, too, that I wanted to talk about, and I didn't bring it up in the uh, the rundown, but I should have. When, I don't know how we'll adjust. Uh, yeah, I know. We, we never do things on the fly in this program. What? Uh, Bill Snyder, the Kansas State coach, we, we joke about him a lot, and uh, probably with good reason. He is uh, up there in years. But mm. it's tough not to respect a guy like Bill Snyder, A, for being around as long as he has and having the success he has. But also, the story came out first in the beginning of the year that he had sent a congratulatory letter to Brock Jensen, the quarterback from North Dakota State, who uh, led, a, led his club to a victory over K-State in Manhattan. And North Dakota State's an FCS program, for those of you who are not familiar. Mm. He also sent a handwritten note this past week to Jay Samaro, who's the tight end from Texas Tech. He was injured against Baylor, and Bill Snyder sent a handwritten note that says, You've had a great year, Jace. Admire how hard you play and the innate toughness you display uh, to help your team. Hope you weren't hurt, uh, hurt badly on Saturday. Wishing you and your teammates continued success, good fortune, and health. Warm regards, Coach Snyder. That's awesome. Hell yes, it is. Isn't That's it? incredible. I mean, that's that's fantastic in in this world of, you know, emails and Facebook pokes and all this other stuff to see people take the time to write a letter like that. That's that's a big thing. And the, the letter he sent to Brock Jensen, I'll read that too. congratulations, Brock. I was truly impressed with you and your teammates. You played so very well, virtually error free and with such poise. I wish you a great year and hope you achieve all you desire. Please share my thoughts with your teammates. Warm regards, Bill Snyder. Now I'm really glad I didn't make the prunes joke I was going to make as soon as you brought him up. <laughs> oh, come on. Now I'd, I'd feel really bad if I did that. Thankfully, I didn't. Oh, yeah. I kind of did, actually. All right. So now I just feel bad. So that really, I mean, that, that actually, that is great. You know, I mean, it's not uncommon to have coaches in the postgame 
press conference, well, you know, their quarterback was very impressive and that was a good team and yada, yada, yada. But to take the time and actually write anything anymore. And not that I am the barometer for society, but just looking at my own life to get me to actually write anything by hand anymore. Yeah. Like, for example, someone brought up the idea. Well, have you ever thought about, you know, keeping a daily, you know, take keeping a daily journal? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> try it a couple times and stuff like that. Well, uh, yeah, you know, they have. I, I was, I saw at this store, they got some really cool looking things for is. Uh, yeah. Well, if I was going to do that, I'd probably want to type it because I can type a lot faster than I can write. And well, don't you think there's something about actually handwriting it? Hmm. Yeah, it might be a deal breaker for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Though? Yeah, I'm just seeing stuff like that. I mean, especially in a, in an era where you have coaches that will jump at the you know the next big paying job, and you have coaches who are not concerned about their players' welfare or anything like that. They're just concerned about racking up rings and all this other stuff. And to see Snyder be around as long as he has in the in the college game, and you know, a guy who's achieved a pretty inarguable level of success. The stadium out there is named after him and his family. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that he would still take the time to do that, that's, he's caught a lot of hell, but that's, that's a gesture that, you know, that's part of a dying breed. You'll never really see that again. What is he, what is he caught a lot of hell for? The fact that he brings in a lot of JUCOs and, and those, those sorts of uh, maneuvers with his program saying he, he takes shortcuts to success. Um, I do not have the numbers in front of me, but uh, I know you will back me up by saying that they favor Coach Snyder in this one. You could take the Kansas State football record without Snyder versus with, and um, I think you're going to find it's a whole lot better with. Uh, yeah, I mean, just I, I would Pretty probably much say for the program's history. Yeah, with without uh, having the numbers directly in front of me, which we can find those, but without having the numbers directly in front of me, you're you're right. You are absolutely right. He, they they are much more successful with him as a part of the program. That's inarguable. I remember reading back when Sports Illustrated was still a highly relevant publication. So and I 1976. Was, yeah, around <laughs> then. and uh, I remember reading a. I, I thought it was so great because they had a capsule on all 109 teams in Division One A football or whatever it was at the time right and if they were not last they were one of the worst teams in division one football according to si this year talking about how kansas state was just a wasteland of college football program and who knows if they're ever going to be able to win there and then it was a few years later that bill snyder took over and things all changed and I just – it always kind of stood with me that I remember Sports Illustrated just making so much fun of Kansas State as a football program. And then Bill Snyder comes in and just turned it around completely and started winning and started being in the discussion for national championships down the stretch some years. Obviously, it never worked out, but that's incredible. I've, I've, I always find it amazing when uh, a coach can come into a place that has been historically awful uh, and turn it around like – how long was it that you always expected to see Temple with the biggest number against them every week if you looked at the football odds? Uh, yeah, fair enough. Right? And now Hal Colden comes in there and turns that program around. It's like, wait, how, how, what, how is that possible? Of course, after Al Golden and after Steve Adazio, they, they're now falling off again with Matt Rule, but you, you make a very good point. And uh, to, to back up what we were saying, too, because we always love to back up our own uh, takes. You can't have hot takes without a, without that stuff. But Kansas State all-time 
is 492, 619, and 41. That is a 445 winning percentage all time. Bill Snyder, he's in his 22nd year there, he's 176, 89, and 1, a 664 winning percentage. That seems better than the historical one. Now, listen to this. This, again, from the intertubes. Uh, in the middle of posting an 0-10 record in the 1947 season, the K-State program slipped below the 500 all-time winning percentage where it has remained since. That's the 1947 season. Mm. Well, I mean, that was a tough year. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, that, I mean, that, that has just been a place that no one else has had any level of success. And this guy has, so I I don't know why people would be so upset with his methods. That that seems like, uh, you know, it's something that I've kind of seen a little bit with some San Diego State fans, where there were stretches a few years ago where people thought that the basketball program was getting stagnant, and that it might be time to find another coach than Steve Fisher because maybe he's taken us as high as the program he can take the program. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. was a program. The San Diego State basketball program would literally draw 2,000 people to a home game. If they drew 4,000 in a 12,000-seat arena, that is, um, that would be a good night. And that was when I got to school year 2000. Well, if, if it tells you anything, Ron Prince took over after Bill Snyder left to begin with. And he coached there for three years. In three years, he was 17-20 and 20 coaching K-State and had Josh Freeman and Jordy Nelson on his team. Right. And then Snyder returned after Prince got fired. So that should tell you right there his impact on Kansas State football. That uh, Beyond that? I, I think everyone can just kind of respectfully say that he's done a, <laughs> a pretty amazing job there. And You know, I, the notes that he's sending to opposing players is a very nice touch. I mean, it's a very, very nice touch. Mentioned I wanted to talk about uh, sports writing a little bit. I mentioned I'd seen a lot already just in my couple of games on, on the beat, and I'll, I'll see it the rest of the year. Uh, Dan Kovacevic, who's a uh, sports writer in Pittsburgh, wrote some stuff about becoming a good sports writer. And here are his points. And we, we won't go into all the detail he writes with them. But I'll give you just the points. You can tell me your, your individual thoughts on them. One, if you're interested because you want to write about sports, get out. Find something else to do. You'll fail, and you will fail quickly and miserably. The job is about journalism, not, not about being pals with your favorite teams or athletes. The passion has to be for journalism, for reporting, for writing and editing and taking pics and page designing or whatever your specialty. There are exactly zero exceptions to this. That's that's a very good point. One of the biggest things, and this was referenced the other day, um, I saw on, on Twitter, um, where writing an article that is critical of anything to do with the team you cover in any way, to any level, is something that is has become really frowned upon in a lot of cases. And if we didn't need a, a better example, can we just look at Nick Pecoro and the way he was treated after not voting for Paul Goldschmidt as the NL MVP? Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that, you know, and he is the, he's the beat writer, um, you know, for the, for the Diamondbacks paper. Um, gosh, why am I blanking on the name of the newspaper in Phoenix, the Arizona Republic. And so he is the, the Diamondbacks beat writer and he does a very good job. And especially being an NOS beat writer, he's a guy who's, uh, who's, whose stuff I've read a lot of in you know brushing up on the D-backs when they were playing the Padres. Very good reporter and listed the reasons in a very well thought out way why he did not 
vote for Goldschmidt and why he voted for McCutcheon. And uh, Diamondbacks players were upset with him for not voting for Goldie. Uh, didn't that kind of blow you away? Yeah, he called it as he saw it and uh, and paid for it. <laughs> so, uh, as someone very correctly said surrounding the incident, is that you know writing critical articles of the team that you're covering has always been one of the hardest things about being a beat writer. And that wasn't even necessarily a critical article, yet it was met with... Uh, I mean, a ton of derision from, you know, from the Diamondbacks, and it, it seemed like such an odd thing, too. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's an award. He's supposed to call it as he sees it. What do you, what do you expect, blind allegiance from a beat writer? Well, there are so many stories, and, and we don't have time to go into them, frankly, but you go back and look at the saga of Steve Spurrier and Ron Morris at the state newspaper in Columbia. You look at Oklahoma State firing a, a student writer, because, you know, he dared say anything negative about the school. I mean, there's there's all different kinds of examples of this. And, uh, you know, for for Ed and myself who have studied this craft and have, you know, applied our wares in this craft, it's it's a little disheartening to see that you would dare tell the truth and end up getting, you know, destroyed over it. I mean, fans, I guess I understand, but when the teams start getting into it, that's a whole other deal. Right. So uh, what do you, you know... What are you really expecting from these people? Are you expecting them to be an extension of your PR department, or are you expecting them to actually be reporters? And I think it's the expectation um, from fans um, that home media will always act as if they are home TV or home radio. And in a lot of cases, if you are doing TV for a team, then you are actually employed by said team. Right. And that... You know, you're supposed to be objective to a point if you're on the air. Well, in that case, you're a team employee. It's a little bit different job. They want you to be a homer for a reason. They want you to support the team for a reason. If someone for the D-backs does something wrong, you're probably going to be wearing kid gloves in the way that you address the problem. You're probably going to talk around it. You're not going to be taking his head on. Whereas if a visiting player does it, it's a lot easier to say, well, you know what? That guy just clanked that one. True. Because you don't have to fly with that person. So it's a slippery slope for those people in the way that they handle stuff, but they're still team employees, so they're expected to be pro-team. This guy doesn't work for the team at all. Nick McCord doesn't work for the team. He works for a local newspaper. He covers the team, but he doesn't have any kind of allegiance the same way that someone like Steve Berthiums, who's doing TV play-by-play, would have. It's a different situation, and I don't think people can quite see that, and therefore can maybe that's why they're holding a newspaper reporter to the same kind of standard that they would hold a t- you know the play-by-play guy who's actually a team employee. And I, I think the other thing, too, that, that people can get confused with, when you're working a beat, it's natural, it's expected to really grow to like a lot of the people on your beat. I mean, you know, just with me, I, I, I can say that you know there are a lot of SIDs that I deal with on a regular basis that I, I really like and some that I'm friends with. I mean... Uh, you know, Pat Kelsey at Winthrop, Dale Lair at Liberty, uh, you know, Tim Kraft at Gardner Webb, these these coaches are all really good people and they're they're kind people and they're people that I love having conversations with, but still I'm not employed by their universities. I'm I'm not, you know, a writer for them specifically. I'm there to do a job and you know, by doing that, they're you know, they're going to get coverage as I see it. It's not one of those things where I'm obligated to say something where I might be, you know, obligated if I were writing the uh, the post-game stuff for the school's website or something like that. It might be a little bit different. 
the, the problem always comes with the fact that cultivating relationships on a given beat is going to allow you, in some cases, better stories because it may give you more access. Sure. If a coach, player, or anyone down the line believes that they can trust you to a point, then they're going to be more open with you. And because there are always certain things that within the back and forth with an athlete, they might not want you to talk about on the air. And if you have a good enough relationship that they understand you know where you can draw that line, that they might be willing to give you a little something that you might not get otherwise or go into a topic that they might not otherwise. And there's something to be said for that and working that angle. And I mean, I say that and it sounds so bad, but. You know, having that ability, I should say, as a reporter to be able to cultivate the relationship in order to, you know, get a guy talking or something like that, that's very important. Or to have make sure that you have a good relationship with any of the SIDs that you deal with, that's huge as a reporter because that means that you're, you know, if you need to come to a game, you have a seat because that SID and you have a good relationship and he knows you're going to conduct yourself as a professional and so on and so forth. All of that is part of the job, but where it becomes tough is the fact that you're cultivating relationships with these people and then have to turn around and say something that's not 100% positive. Very true. Point two. Not to uh, not to uh, you know ig- ignore that point, but in the interest mm-hmm. of time. Uh, oh, I know. Point two: write a ton. Small papers pay for coverage of everything from school board meetings to town hall to high school athletics. They won't pay much, and you won't win awards, but you'll build up a profile of clips. The other thing that he brings up here, uh, he says, write on a blog for your own amusement if you wish, but the greatest blog stuff in the world won't mean a wit to an editor. They want to see actual submitted news that went through an editorial process and that to some extent made an impact on the community. It's it's funny when he brings that up because Bleacher Report has an has an editorial process, but still doesn't have the best reputation within the sports journalism world. And I just I found it interesting that he brought that particular point to the to the uh, to the table. Well, there's really not a whole lot of correlation between lists and journalism. That's true enough. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not a traditional type of news article where you're trying to pick the top ten something. Well, it's it's kind of akin to if somebody who's a BuzzFeed contributor tries to uh, go to work for CNN or something. It's it's the same deal. Well, I, I mean, are you going to end up on some like weird tri-boxed uh, midday show? Is that <laughs> I don't I don't see the correlation. <laughs> Just I, you know that that's the thing is I don't I don't watch a lot of the the news channels. Um, but it it always just cracks me up. Uh, usually it's something where I see them on at the gym, as we've talked about a few times uh, sure. tonight on our various programs. Uh, and the sound is never on, and I'm not about to try to seek out the sound on a radio frequency, um, which I still find <laughs> it's like, really? Does, is anyone listening to it? Anyway, uh, but there's always uh, – it's never just a single camera shot. It's always two or three or four people on the screen at once, and it's like a, an argumentative Brady Bunch kind of intro or something like <laughs> that that's always going on on your TV. See, to me, it's like a Google Plus Hangout ending up on, on TV. Wait, why, what are you going to ping me about later? We just solved it. <laughs> You know that that just seemed like the weirdest thing too. That that meeting, if you, if you know that commercial, I'm talking. Yeah, about. yeah, I do. Yeah, I just was. <laughs> well, I'll email you later. No, what are you going to email me about? Look, you're just kind of being a dick, man. Look, <laughs> these people want to get in touch with you. Then let them get in touch with you. You could just get back to them and say like, look, I think we're good on this issue or something. You know, you don't have to be an ass about it. You're just hanging out on Google. <laughs> Point three in here. I I say as as you know. Something from an editor all the time because I'm also an editor. 
Uh, learn to write. It's a learned craft, not an inherent one. No one is born a good or great writer. It's up to you to read and to practice as much as possible. Amen. I mean, I've, I've been writing for, God, if you go back to college, I've been writing for two decades now. And I'm, I'm still, I'm not, you know, a, a, a Pulitzer Prize winner or anything, but I'd like to think I'm a lot better than I was then. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, still there are people now who want to get into the game who just have no idea of sentence structure, of, you know, proper anything really and they just throw together a bunch of stuff because it's something it's like something they saw somewhere else and it's just horribly crafted stuff that I'm, there's no substitute for practice i agree in darn near anything um unless it's you know i don't know running in a straight line and god-given genetics or something i don't know but uh that is something you're going to need a lot of reps on and almost any form of media is something you're going to need a lot of reps on. I mean, does anyone really think, you know what? I banged out two columns in my life. I think I'm ready for the front page. <laughs> See, that's that's another thing, too, that's become an, an internet argument lately. And, and for, for people, just so everybody knows, I mean, I, I'll tell you a little bit of inside baseball stuff about myself. I, I don't do this to pat myself on the back or anything. I'm just telling you the way I honestly do things. And if, if you guys end up on a beat, I hope that you Consider the same thing. I always, if I'm in a media room, I will always defer to the print person 100% of the time because they are on a tighter deadline than I am. The, the other night, I was working a game. Uh, I, the coach came in to talk to us at 10.23. The print guy had to have a, a story filed by 11. So in, in that case, I'm going to let the, the print guy get in everything he has to get in. I'm not going to interrupt him. I'm going to let him go ahead and do what he needs to do. That way, if he needs to, to roll out while I'm asking my questions, that's perfectly fine. He's gotten the stuff that he needs for his copy. And that's that's something that people need to learn if they're going to be working a beat like this. My deadline's 4 a.m. So, I mean, you know, the coach can talk all he wants. Um, you know, I, I don't really mind. But I'm always considerate of the print guy in, in that case. So when when you're at a game... You know, if you're on press row, if you just happen to see the local print guy walk by, talk to him about what he does. He'll tell you about what he does. He'll tell you about the business. And he'll, you know, give you a little bit of background on it. They're not exactly secretive about what they do. And, uh, you know, I, I just think there these days there are far too many people who get into the business because they see somebody that was on Bleacher Report and they convinced them to join Bleacher Report. Or they think that, you know, writing is a good way to get into games free and stuff like that, <laughs> you know. I mean, seriously, you and I both know when you go to a game. If you're if you're there on a credential, you're not there just to watch the game. You're there to right. do 500 other things. And I think that's one of the biggest misnomers about being a media professional is people think, oh, hey, you could see all these games for free. Isn't that awesome? Well, kind of, but <laughs> you know, there's there's a, a but that goes with it that people don't really see. There's there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of media room pizza and a lot of uh, you know, 2 a.m. story filings and everything else that come with it. But yeah, if, if you're going to get into it, learn how to write, learn how to actually compose a sentence. That's a big thing. And, you know, we'll get into a couple more points here that, that Dan had that are along that same line. Uh, point four, it's always about the news. That's the lifeblood. He goes on to say, the real thrill comes in breaking news or in writing a piece of any kind that makes a real impact, a real difference. Sure, that can be about a championship, but it can also be about heartbreak, real human tragedy. The satisfaction, if that's the right word here, comes in a job well done, a story or opinion well conveyed. It sure as heck doesn't come from the team you're covering winning a game. And I, I think that's really where you and I have come to love Joe Posnanski so much because he conveys that emotion in what you and I both love. He's he's an absolute pro 
at what he does, and he's not just telling you, well, okay, uh, San Diego State won seventy to you know fifty five. He's he's telling you more than that, and I, I think that everybody who's in media, whether it be print, electronic, or whatever, should be aspiring to that same standard. Well, just thinking about from personal experience, when I was producing Padre games, they could win games, and we could have a bad show. Sure. These these things were not – there was no correlation between whether or not we had a good show with a win or a loss. I mean, I think we, we had a very good show the night that Jonathan Sanchez threw a no-hitter against the Padres. Um, you know, at the same time, a lot of the times my favorite shows were ones that might come back to wins because it was fun. You know, it's not fun uh, when you're getting your head kicked in on a regular basis. But you know what I'm saying? This is That is the thing that is completely independent of the outcome of the game is whether or not you had a good show. And then you could just translate it to what he's talking about. With did you, did you write a good story? Well, that really doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the game was a win for the Pirates. And then the final point, any amount of time you think will be productively invested in learning more about sports is not. It's a waste of energy, at least as related to actual work time. I'll repeat, it's about writing and reporting and all that. If you're applying for a sports job, chances are excellent you already know sports, and what you don't know can come through simple osmosis or the reporting itself. Uh, The next editor interviewing someone for a job who asks, hey, how much do you know about the Penguins will be the first. They couldn't care less what you know about sports, and they really couldn't care less what you think about sports. They want people who can write and report, period. True. Very true. 100% true. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I have heard of things like for Fox giving production assistance quizzes that cover a variety of different sports to show that they are at least basically competent and knowing these things. Um, but at the same time, that's a little bit of a different deal. If you're covering several different sports in a, or working on different sports in a day, then maybe that might apply to a point. But if you're on a, a beat, as you've been referring to, yeah. it really doesn't have anything to do with that. It's about knowing the team that you're with all the time. And that's really what's more important. And, you know, again, it, it's, it, if you can go to the game, watch the game, pick out the important details, go and talk to the important figures, include what they had to say about it, you're going to get most of it right, you'd think. Assuming that there's that basic caveat that you'd assume that any journalist has as the ability to write and form coherent sentences. The other two things here that are, are very important. First of all, if you're writing a you know a game story, let's, let's just throw it there because I, I write a lot of them. One thing you have to be able to do is you have to be able to take people through what happened in that game. You have to, you know, take them on the runs that each team went on. You have to, you know, kind of describe the action for people who didn't get to see it. It is very much the, you know, the baseball on radio of journalism. You need to, you know, paint the picture. You need to, you know, convey the the crowd. You need to convey, uh, you know, a big defensive stop or something like that. You have to to be aware of where a game turns. And a lot of that comes into just, you know, general sports knowledge. And it's, it's kind of like he said, you know, as long as you know enough to be functionally literate about sports, you can tell that story. The other thing too, that I hear in media rooms all the time, I've actually challenged an SID uh, to keep me accountable on this. You hear so many times the questions and it's, it's happening all the time on sidelines these days that start with talk about Mm -hmm. that is the laziest form of journalism. There is because all you're doing is just, you know, you're not you're not asking a creative question. You're not trying to you know get any information. You're just coming up with something that's going to uh, fill white space and get your deadline. That's really all it is. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, I, I always have been very uh, drawn toward people. And I, I heard this a lot in the in the media room last year at, at the Big South Tournament. Toward people who ask, actually ask thoughtful questions and ask questions that, you know, will bring something out of a coach instead of just setting them up for the softball stuff that they've obviously been prepared for. Talk about your team's preparation this week. Well, we really practice hard. And I think that our preparation this week is really what allowed us to have some great success here in this game tonight. And it's because of that preparation. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I mean, all it does is fill white space and meet your deadline. There's there's nothing really substantive to it. No. So, I mean, if you start asking a more probing question about in what ways were you able to prepare for the other team's insert thing that they're good at, then that might cause a more specific answer. And that still is not the most probing way you could do it. The more detail that you can put into your question, the more specific the answer is probably going to have to be and the more detailed that it's going to have to be in order to meet the specific criteria of your question. It's just going to end up being a much better situation for everyone involved, reader included. Well, see, I I think of some of the questions I've asked, and again, it's not saying that I'm some kind of Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist or anything. That's just the easiest example I have. I think of when Winthrop played USC Upstate last week, and, and Tory Craig, the all-everything player for Upstate, had 31 points in that game, but he only shot 4 of 10 in the second half. And I said to Winthrop coach Pat Kelsey in the media room, I said, it's kind of insane to think of shutting down a player who had 31 points in a game and doing what he did, but still, he only shot 4 of 10 in the second half. What adjustments did you make uh, between the first half and the second half to, uh, to limit his shots and to get more defenders on him? You know, stuff like that, because it actually talks about something strategic. It's not something where, you know, he can just come with some kind of pre-can. Oh, well, they're a great team, and we worked hard, and we're just privileged to get a victory over him. He actually has to talk about something that means something to somebody. Um, you know, last year, Liberty won the Big South Tournament. They had 20 losses. And the first thing I thought to ask Coach Dale Lair, again, not patting myself on the back, but just stating what I did, I said, Liberty is obviously very well known to those of us who've been here in the room all week and who've been watching your team what's the first thing you'd want to tell people around the country who are about to become familiar with your school and your team about this university and about this team? Again, it's not perfect, and I'm not saying I'm the greatest journalist ever, but it's something where it's just a little bit outside the norm. Uh, If I remember correct, uh, Coach was very intrigued by a question. Yeah, he said it was a good question, and that was honestly something I I felt a little honored by. But, you know, again, not saying I'm, I'm the greatest one ever. It's just I have more examples of myself readily available. Did other people in the media room get upset when you let loose the full Tiger Woods fist pump after you said it was a good question? <laughs> you can't put it on the board. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Actually, uh, I, I did manage to capture a little bit of sound of myself after I asked that question, so I'll, I'll share it with everybody. <laughs> so that was, that was me after I asked that question. But, the, you know, I mean, all the points made in this article are really good. I yeah, mean, the, the, I agree. The business, it, you know, it's like a lot of uh, professions uh, that seem glamorous in some ways. Once you're, of course, that you're in it, a lot of that glamour goes away and you realize that there's plenty of hard work to be done. And, you know, there are uh, there are just <laughs> so many stories that I can point to firsthand uh, – of covering a, a team day in and day out where you just feel like you have run through every storyline. You've run through every sub piece of subject matter. You feel like you've talked about every player you've done everything there is to possibly do. And your job is to still find a way to turn over a new leaf in order to, you know, satisfy your reader or in my case, it was viewer. And that's as challenging a thing as anything. 
Yeah, I do that every week trying to write ACC and SEC capsules. It's it's the same thing. You keep saying the same things about the same teams. Yeah, well, in in a way, but you're always trying to say it or put it at least in a different way. Right. So it seems different from what you've been saying before. You know, there might only be so much stuff that there is to talk about when it comes to Florida State, but you're going to try to keep finding a way to say that Jameis Winston's really good because he is. <laughs> One other thing. But you, but you just can't just be like, oh, he was really impressive this week. Why was he impressive? You can maybe get into his stats or you could get into how he compares to other freshman quarterbacks or any number of things that give you an angle of some sort. But finding those angles is as challenging as anything, and that takes a lot of work. And the frustration that can come, you know, you hear about writer's block all the time. Well, you know, from the TV side, you would still have a similar type of situation. It would just be, gosh, what are we going to talk about in our open tonight? They've just lost seven in a row. One other thing, too, that I'll, I'll say very briefly, and then we'll move on in the, in the interest of time because uh, it's kind of sneaking up on us. Um, one thing I can say about anybody wanting to get into this business or wanting to be a writer or whatever, there's, there's a lot of fun in uh, sitting at an ACC tournament game, baseball game, and it's after 2 o'clock in the morning. North Carolina and NC State are going into the 18th inning, and you're getting to watch a game you love and everything. But there's damn sure not a lot of glamour in it. There's especially not a lot of glamour sitting in a media room at 2.45 in the morning taking questions from a coach. Um, yeah, I I can say that in our, our world of uh, dual feeds where you know two television shows who are covering the same game end up sharing some cameras and resources in order to keep costs down, which is a you know, a newer trend in television, but you sure. know, in the interest of the almighty dollar, one <laughs> that, you know, no one should be surprised is happening if they didn't know that that was the case already. Uh, I've been in a truck to hear both sides cheer an eighth inning home run to break a tie. <laughs> it happened in Atlanta. Uh, I, I, no, I mean, I can think of just, you know, different times firsthand where um, you'll hear people on both sides just happy that a game is going to end. And that's not, you know, when you say things like that, it, it's painting people in the journalism field as not respectful of what they have or appreciating the job they have. And that's not what I'm trying to say at all. But all of a sudden, once you get into it and it is your job, your sense of reality about what you're doing and what you're covering changes a little bit. And I think that's unavoidable. Yeah, and I think people crack me a lot, and, and probably you too, for not being enough of a fan. But when you're around it as much as you and I are and, you know, you've been in those situations – you, you still are a fan of the sport, but you're not as much of a fan as you would be if it weren't attached to your job. Well, I think that a, a big thing that, that makes it larger than life is just the idea that you know these people that you see on TV are larger than life figures. And then when you start to meet some of the people who play the game, even if it's not the same games that you're talking about, you see that these are just human beings. Like I said earlier, they're just people. You know, The guy that you see who's who's up at bat or who's catching passes or whatever that is. He's just a person and he's a more famous person than the average guy, obviously. But once you start, once the human element is made a little bit more real for you, um, some of the, the larger than life feel about games or the hero worship or whatever you might have as a kid that, that makes the feeling of athletes like more than just a person that, that kind of goes away. And I think that that takes away some of the fandom too, just because it's like, Hey, these are people. And you know, I mean, it's there. I'm kind of flaming out of my take here, but I think you see my <laughs> point. Hashtag hot takes. Yeah. 
<laughs> let's uh, let's no, but, go ahead. Dude, do you see my point there? Did, did that make any sense? Absolutely. In, in fact, okay. I, I think that pretty much capsulized what I would think about the whole thing. It's you, you never really lose your joy for the game. You never really lose your fandom for the game. But still, there's a different a different component, a different air it takes on once it becomes part of your livelihood. Right. So there you go. So just to uh, to summarize where you feel you didn't make the uh, the most cogent point, you did, and I followed. So there. Yeah, but I mean, you could point. You could still, you could still point to anything. Be it an actor, be it a singer, yeah. be it anyone, yeah. and they might have this job that's like, oh my god, I would love to be an actor. But you still hear actors talking about, well, you know, I was on set for fourteen hours, and you know, all this stuff. And sure, they have their trailers and all that that's going on. But for them, within the context of their life, it's a long day. Let's take a look at some of these games coming up this weekend, and we'll try and bust through some of these. I know, uh, again, we have time limitations, so we'll try and stay as close to the time as we can. But um, Pittsburgh minus one at Syracuse this week. A lot of uh, significance to that game, bowl eligibility, et cetera, et cetera, in the ACC. Any thoughts on that game? I mean, for the, the fact that a team that was uh, beaten as badly as they were last week in, in Syracuse by, by Florida State is uh, <laughs> involved in a one-point line just tells you that Pittsburgh is uh, no great shakes either. Yeah, uh, in think... Pittsburgh last week, everybody it was it was funny watching Twitter because all of the conversation on Twitter started shifting to teams that were falling apart. Ohio State was one of them. Uh, North Carolina was another one. Carolina pretty much completely punted the entire game back to Pittsburgh, and then Carolina scored a late touchdown, a, a late Ryan Switzer touchdown, and won the ball game. But everybody was pretty much sure after Pittsburgh came in off that victory over Notre Dame, they were going to finish off Carolina. And now Carolina's sitting there with five wins and. Just about the entire ACC sitting there with five wins, and so there's that. Well, I mean, having an ACC bull tie-in these days is not exactly a recipe for success if you're a bull, is it? <laughs> not so much. It's kind of getting like no. the uh, the SEC. I mean, the, the SEC is really top-heavy, but you start getting down toward the bottom of the conference, and it's like, eh. I don't know, man. I mean, you, you, know, you still look at the SEC. you got Alabama, LSU, Georgia, um, uh, Auburn. Who I'm obviously forgetting, A and M. I mean, those are five teams right there, though. That like that, that's a pretty solid group of five. The ACC you got Florida State, um... <laughs> Clemson. Don't forget Clemson. Okay, that's true. I always I end up forgetting Clemson. I don't know. They'll end up losing another game before the year's over, just because that's seemingly what they do. Well, right now, okay. Let's just look at the conference. We now have two teams that are are completely ineligible for bowl play. We had one going into last week, so we could have had, could potentially had thirteen bowl eligible teams out of the ACC. We now have twelve that could go to bowls after NC State lost last week to fall to zero and seven in the league and three and seven overall. But we have Florida State and Clemson, obviously. Then behind them. We have eight win Duke. How the hell did that happen? But good for them and great win last yeah, week. Yeah, exactly. It's Miami. Yeah, eight win Duke. Behind them, Virginia Tech is seven and four. Miami's seven and three. Boston College is six and four, so they're bowl eligible. Maryland is six and four, so they're bowl eligible. And talk about teams that skidded into bowl eligibility. They started off five and one. Uh, Syracuse, five and five. North Carolina, five and five. Pittsburgh, five and five. And Wake Forest is still somehow alive at four and six. Well, hearing those sterling records of Pittsburgh and Syracuse, uh, this would seem like a game to go with the home team. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm good with that. I'll I'll uh, I'll go right along with you. <laughs> no further analysis just, necessary. Just because uh, Kentucky plus twenty three and a half at Georgia. I don't really care about the line on this game. I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about the the, uh, the play in the Georgia game that decided it. 
Well, it was, it was rather amazing. I was I was around the house on Saturday just doing some things around the house, and uh, I managed to turn on that game just as Auburn went up 20 and saw the entire Georgia comeback, saw you know Aaron Murray uh, you know cut his head open trying to and uh, you know it being called the go-ahead touchdown at the time. And I mean, I'm sure you've seen the replays on it. Do you think he got in? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> but then again, I don't think so either, but once they called it a touchdown on the field, yeah, that's, that's the thing. I mean, once, once they make that call, it's not getting overturned unless there's something just completely, uh, obvious. And there wasn't in that case. Right. And the thing that was amazing is they showed every replay on CBS is they, they had, they kept showing stuff from the side of the field that where his knees were blocked. And I kept thinking, do you not have a reverse angle? <laughs> and if you don't, you should say that you don't. Because all I could think was, where's your reverse angle? And then they finally did a nice little split screen where they synced up a couple angles, and I thought it actually made it pretty clear that he didn't get in. But still, great game, great play up to that point. What a comeback for Georgia. Amazing. Gets the fourth and 18, and uh, that play happened. And I screamed, and my girlfriend came running in <laughs> asking if I was hurt. Um, <laughs> And then realized it, it must have been a really cool play because the house across the street also started screaming and the one next door. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something kind of uh, amazing about being in a sports information office and hearing what the blank just happened down the hall for, <laughs> while you're you know getting set up for for a game. That's uh, yeah, that's a whole other thing. But I you know so watching the play, the thing that just stood out to me was you know the the pass obviously had no business being completed. Right. So. Knowing that, seeing the interview with Gus Malzahn and seeing the interview with the quarterback that threw the ball was so hilarious because there was no reference whatsoever made to the fact that the pass was terrible, should have been intercepted. It was, well, you know what, I just believe a lot in my ability to go out and make a play. And Ricardo Joseph in the huddle, he told me, hey, you know, put your trust in me and throw me the ball. And, and I, that's what I did. And, you know, and he just went and made a play. No. No, 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 that's not what happened at all. You threw it and it hit a guy in the chest and he managed to bat it straight up in the air, right into the path of your receiver. That's not making a play. I mean, come on. That was about as lucky as you could possibly get. Great game. Fantastic game. Was so glad that I saw it. But the idea that it was we just have faith in our quarterback to go out and make a play. Ugh. And, of course, ESPN with the tired, immaculate deflection after it. Was, I, I was stunned from a TV standpoint that the uh, Kentucky LSU Hail Mary was not dusted off immediately, uh, considering CBS has had SEC games forever now. You mentioned that was a game that was on Raycom, but with yeah. the nature of that play, I would figure that that would be readily available. Yeah, you'd think. I mean, even even if you're, uh, you know, you're calling Kentucky and LSU's SIDs frantically just saying, can you send me a melt real quick? <laughs> Please, something. They, uh, right. they never got it. Uh, it's got to be somewhere, and I, don't know, I was surprised. But anyway, uh, as far as the line that you mentioned, uh, Kentucky's not very good. Uh, I would think that if there's ever a program that doesn't exactly have its whole heart in the rest of the season right now after getting <laughs> it ripped out of its chest, it might be Georgia. So this might be a place to take the points, uh, even though I don't think there's any way Kentucky can win. Eight and two Minnesota giving fifteen and a half at home to Wisconsin. That is just that's just mind boggling, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, not that Minnesota is a uh, a BCS contender or anything, but giving fifteen and a half and they've got eight wins—that's a little much. That's uh, that's really kind of a with everything that they've gone through as well, and that's what makes it that's what makes it so strange. Yeah, I mean, you know, with Jerry Kill as their head coach and him having to leave for medical reasons. 
in the middle of the season. And to the point where they'd be 15 and a half point favorites at home over a Wisconsin team that is also eight and two. No, they're actually giving 15 and a half. Oh, okay. They're I'm a dog. <laughs> that, that seems even equally baffling when both teams are eight and two. Yeah, it's, that's a big number for those two teams. That's, that's the thing that throws me off is just the size of the number. I'd understand if it's, you know, like eight and a half or something like that, but double that, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, it seems like a good opportunity to take the points. Speaking of uh, taking points, Vanderbilt plus two and a half at Tennessee. God, man. You know, is there, I mean, is there a program that, that still get it still gets me on name recognition just a little bit. Think, well, it's I mean, come on, it's Tennessee, but they're awful. They're, <laughs> they're, four, they're really, four and six. They're really not good. Yeah, see, Vanderbilt's bowl eligible for the third straight year. Tennessee's four and six, and Tennessee's a favorite on Rocky Top. Right. Okay. How does that compute? Uh, speaking of weird road dogs, this this is a, a week of just odd road underdogs. A and M plus four and a half at LSU. Well, I, I mean, I guess you wonder what, what kind of game is really going to be played, and I, I guess that the idea of going to Death Valley is going to slow down Johnny Manziel. And you know, for all that's happened with him, and for as unlikable as he made himself in the offseason, and with all of his you know, show-me-the-money finger gestures and all of that nonsense, he's really good at college football. Well, and I don't think there's any way around that. And the numbers he's putting up this year are uh, even better than the ridiculous ones he put up last year, and it's kind of just hard to believe that anyone's going to be able to stop him at this point you just wonder you know is a&m's defense going to be able to stop lsu and i mean lsu's offense is improved but still if it becomes a track meet do you really believe that lsu can keep up i don't and and you remember the uh the wacky start that that game had last year at kyle field i mean texas a&m jumps out to the big lead early and then just completely collapses in the second half but See, this is another thing, too, that people aren't reporting. This is a game in Death Valley, but it is not a night game in Death Valley. So there's not that same mystique that there usually seems to be with night games in Baton Rouge. Right. No, that's true. And for LSU, I, I would assume that this is going to be a Coach Kilmer game plan if you could really do it any way you want. <laughs> right? It has to be, yeah. Right. Run the ball, control the clock, all that stuff. You, uh, you don't have to comment on this game, but I just find the line amusing. BYU minus one at Notre Dame. <laughs> that, just, you know, usually you, you read off these games, and in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, you know, I hope that team wins, and then try to think about it from the perspective of what is it against the number. But, you know, it, it's pretty amazing to get me to the point where I'm like, yeah, you know what, I, I actively would like Notre Dame to win, but I would actively like Notre Dame to win. Something that's unusual for Oklahoma, they are a three-and-a-half-point dog at Kansas State. Well, I mean, the wheels seem to completely have come off for them this year. Sure. I mean, it never even felt like they were really on that much, were they? Uh, no, but it's just, it's unusual to see that team as a road dog. I mean, you, you think about the only times they've ever really been a road dog would have been, you know, maybe against Oklahoma State and Bedlam once or twice in Stillwater. That's, you know, it's not a common thing for them. And to see that they've gotten to that now. Right. The, the thing that I just I find so odd has just been the complete lack of stability at the quarterback position when it was something that they had, you know, such a run of quarterbacks from Heupel to White to, you know, Bradford and, and people like that, where you know, you could always count on them having a, a, a poised quarterback and, and one who could really lead that team. And then they really have just been kind of all over the place the last couple of years. And uh, it's just been it's just been such a, a strange feeling where 
it's a palpable feeling that just Oklahoma is not the same juggernaut that they were in the past. Now they're a three and a half point dog to a six and four K State team. Yeah, that still seems like a weird line, doesn't it? Uh, awfully weird, yes. And uh, this is kind of weird I'll take too. Oklahoma. Yeah, this this is weird too. Missouri only minus two and a half at Ole Miss. If if uh, Missouri loses this game, things all of a sudden get really interesting down Columbia way. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I actively will be rooting for Ole Miss in this game since <laughs> I hate Missouri after my one trip there and the referees that they had in their pocket jobbing my Aztecs out of a win in the final <laughs> minute or so of the game since I'm a, you know, highly objective media professional on this show. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, go Rebs. Uh, two quick games of interest to us. Middle Tennessee minus 23 at winless Southern Miss. Southern Miss trying to avoid two consecutive 0-12 seasons. How did okay? So is that another program where we can start talking about what a coach really meant to the program now that he's left? Uh, yes, Larry Fedora leaves that program. Ellis Johnson comes in, goes zero and twelve, gets fired. Todd Monken comes in, he's zero and ten, I believe, and t- they're talking about firing him now. It's crazy. Now, as well as he did at Southern Miss, does you know what's going on with Larry Fedora at Carolina? We've been talking about how it hasn't really worked out there. So yeah. It's... Uh, no, no, no. It's just it, it seems like there's sometimes no rhyme or reason as to why a guy will be a good fit or not at a given school. Yeah, well, when you lose Davis and Fletcher and those kinds of uh, playmakers on offense and don't bother replacing them, that that hurts too. And uh, for for you guys, Boise State minus seven on the Mesa. You know, this is a Nasdaq team that just became bowl eligible last week uh, with a overtime win in Hawaii. That's right, winless Hawaii. <laughs> uh, not exactly the picture-perfect win, but there is nothing picture-perfect about San Diego State this year. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, as, as I was joking around with, with uh, a friend of mine in San Diego media, this is a team that does it the hard way or the hard way. And it really <laughs> is true. Like, there's nothing... It, this is not a team that plays blowout, you know, that has blown anyone out uh, for a big win. Every game has been a game where there's been some point in time where you think, oh gosh, they could lose this thing. And in some cases they have, um, you know, blowing a 20 point lead against Oregon state at home, blowing a, a big lead against Fresno state at home. And this team could be in an even better space. So it's not a question of talent with this team. It's just a question of being able to stay consistent. Um, not only from week to week, but just play to play three quick NFL games. We won't go through all the NFL games, but just three of them, in a hurry, Panthers minus four and a half at Miami. God, you know, at this point, I mean, after the win on Monday night, even though it's a short week, Miami is a wreck right now, and the Panthers front seven, even though it's uh, definitely nicked up at the moment, is just exceptionally impressive. Over or under in that game, 41. Oh, gosh. Uh, that's one of those ones that's just so hard to deal with just because you get, say you got two special teams plays. A special team score and a defensive score. Yeah. All of a sudden, that inflates your number, and you're, and you're done. Yep. Very true. I mean, it's not like Carolina is completely incompetent as an offense. <laughs> no, you saw that last night. Cam Newton throws for three scores. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I, I know that Miami is obviously missing at least two starting offensive linemen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But and they have very little to speak of when it comes to a running game, and Mike Wallace has not worked out as a primary receiver, and. So on and so forth, but gosh, that is just a. Uh, that's rough. Speaking of rough, Denver minus one at New England. 
I'm surprised it's only one, to be honest. With the injuries that the Pats have, especially with their defensive secondary right now, I mean, you, you were watching that the game last night against the Panthers. They were down so far that their cornerback death chart at this point, especially with Aqib Tlaib getting banged up again. I just don't see how they expect to cover um, you know, the Bronco passing attack. And if they just keep sitting back in zone coverage like they did toward the end of the game uh, and not bringing pressure as they did uh, last night, I, I, it seems like it's just going to be a long day. That seems like a, a game that the Broncos can win. Two quick key points. First of all, you saw what Greg Olson did last night against the Patriots, and you, you just know that Julius Thomas is licking his lips you know, to get, to get against that defense if he can play. Uh, he's had some injury problems. But they didn't have an answer for Greg Olson, and they certainly wouldn't have one for Julius Thomas. Uh, the other thing, too, over-under in that game, 56 and a half. Yeah, I, you know, that's given a lot of respect to a Patriots offense that just has not been nearly as impressive this year. And while I know the Broncos defense, um, you know, thrives off playing at mile high, they're, they're not doing so this week. You know, they're, they're in New England, you said, right? Yes. You know, just to make sure that I'm not with the crazy talk again. <laughs> um, that that just seems like it seems like a really big number. And you're counting on you count. I, I would say you're counting on the Broncos to supply at least you know, 30 to 35 of that. And I just don't know. I mean, the Patriots have not been a very good offensive team for most of the year, and they still seem to be getting a lot of uh, sort of name brand kind of respect. I agree. And uh, to close things out, Monday night, 49ers minus five at Washington. Uh, well, I mean, this is a game where whether or not they, they cover that five, it needs to be a win for the Niners. I mean, they, they are they are in a bad place right now. And, and Colin Kaepernick um, has really looked just awful uh, of late. And, you know, everyone goes through struggles as the year goes on. And if they can start to turn it around as they start to get the entire important receiving core back, you know, you, Bolden has been there all year, but Manningham just returned um, and he still looked a little lost in his first game back against the Saints. Uh, and then Crabtree has started to practice again. So he should return soon. And if he can actually come back and be effective, that changes the whole face of that offense. But uh, you know, it's it's a weird thing watching a, a Niner quarterback drop back to throw and thinking uh, this is probably incomplete. And that was the feeling that you had watching the game against the Saints this past weekend. What surprised me more than anything is they didn't go out of their way to make a concerted effort to run the football against the Saints. And, and that was something that really confused me. The Redskins are not a good defensive football team. I would expect a lot of running, especially in the first quarter of this game, to try to set up everything else. You know, take the pressure off Kaepernick, and it's a simple philosophy, but it's one that the Niners kind of ignored against New Orleans, and I expect them to really do it against Washington. Over under their forty-seven. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I would just think under, just because the Niners' offense has not been generating enough points, and their defense is still very good. And on that note, let's go ahead and wind down the program for uh, for this week. This has been Sports Matters. November 19th, 2013. See you back here next week, same time, same channel, as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday. No turkey jokes, no turkey recipes, none of that stuff from us. But we will see you back here next week to talk more sports. For Ed Barnes, I'm Brian Wilmer. Join us at Sports Matters on Twitter, radio at sportsmatters.info, the email address. We'll see you back here next week. Enjoy your weekend of sports. We'll talk soon. Okay, we're clear. Cool, man. All right, good job. I uh, I got a bolt. All right, man. I'll catch up with you later. All right, have a good one. All right, bye. See you.